I'm Nick. And I'm Toby. We're the co-founders of Ask Us For Ideas, where we help the world's most ambitious businesses, large or small, new or established, to connect with a collection of the best and most exciting creative agencies from around the world. Being at the intersection of these brands and creative teams for the best part of a decade has allowed us to get to know some truly exceptional people. This podcast, Private Views, aims to shine a light on that. This season, we're back inside some of the industry's most revered creative studios, but we're also focusing in on the other side of the equation, their clients. We'll meet the enterprising and insightful business leaders that, brought together with these agencies, are reshaping or reinventing product categories, commerce, and brand. In this episode, we meet Trevor Hubbard, the founder and global CEO of Butcher Shop Creative. Headquartered in San Francisco, their reach is far beyond the Bay Area. Their expansion as a business has turned to the acquisition of complementary agencies to broaden their capabilities. Recently acquiring Maniac, a digital first design and technology firm in Guadalajara, and next looking to acquire another agency in the Asia-Pacific region. Unknowns to me equal fear, and the amount of unknowns and fear that you have equals a lack of clarity. Lack of clarity is the root of all evil because it's filled with assumptions and surprises. Um, and so how do, we, how do we mitigate that? How do we fix that? Their business savvy is also turned inward, creating a proprietary process that dissects not KPIs, but how and why clients might fail. The major hurdle to success for Butcher Shop is to continually beat failure. Our producer, David Michon, spoke to Trevor from Los Angeles about his entrepreneurial start, why focusing exclusively on success is a fast track to burnout, and the best things about failure. So Trevor, I wanted to start by asking you a little bit about the origin of Butcher Shop, because of course it was founded in 2008 um, in the midst of a recession. Maybe you could enlighten me as to why you chose then to start a new business and kind of what the, you know, if you could set the stage a bit for me um, in terms of how you found uh, how you found your footing in that context? Yeah, I guess uh, I guess the funny story is I reached a point in life where I was kind of unemployable. I had never really had a resume, uh, never really worked for anyone. Um, I was coming off a business venture where we built uh, massive ski jumps in San Francisco and at the ballpark where the Giants play baseball, and um, you know, kind of of the X Games, Big Aaron style, and it was you know, a, a, a huge festival for four years um, that was kind of part of San Francisco lore. And, um, you know, it was a multi-million dollar event with, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And we had to do everything. Um, I had a couple partners and we had to fundraise. We had to fight politics. We had to promote it. We had to organize the event. We had to... Uh, you know, run a competition. We had to bring all the entertainment and the music and the talent. It got so big that, you know, one year there was 40,000 people at the ballpark, you know, where the Giants play baseball here in San Francisco. And, you know, music was Jurassic 5 and, and Most Deaf and Talib Kweli. And, you know, it was a very fun time with uh, Tony Hawk on the vert ramp. And, and it was really great. Flash forward a few years to 2008, the last thing 
companies want to invest in in their marketing in a recession is ski jumps in an urban environment. Um, <laughs> so the the beauty of it was creating something from scratch. The catastrophe of it was running out of money and not having funding to to allow that to happen. And these were, you know, big, big sponsors, you know, think PlayStation, Toyota, uh, North Face, you know, some some really, you know, marquee brands that that were promoting culture and commerce in a new way. Um, so I kind of felt I was at a crossroads. I had done something so entrepreneurial and tried to make something like that work, had some great success. And during that time, I was teaching at Academy Art here in the city um, and running a couple classes on innovative marketing and advertising you know, advanced graphic design and things like that, um, and had a small agency called Griffiths Thunket that was servicing, you know, these 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 events and things like that, and, and was mostly using students to come in and get paid to work on some of the things we were doing. So it was kind of that time where I was like, had my hands in a lot of things, and when the recession hit, um, I think like most people, it was mostly greeted with a lot of questions. Um, like, what does this mean? What am I going to do? Um, but for me, I, I don't know. As an entrepreneur, I've just always had this slant that anytime there's something uncertain, anytime there's something outside of my control, that's when I get really good at things. You know, I, I, I tend to shrink the target instead of asking so many questions. I try to come up with like, what are the big opportunities that here? What's this mean for, you know, um, what could be, you know, how do I want this to, to play out in my life? Um, and so, you know, it took about six months of not really doing anything and maybe just designing and, and, and working with friends and helping them with their projects that said, maybe it's time to, to start something. Maybe, maybe what I'm seeing right now is more requests from people that are trying to do things from a budget perspective that, I had a lot of work because everything else was so expensive and people were trying to stretch their dollar and, 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 and make, make use of less by getting more. And I was like, I could be the answer for that. So I think that's kind of when the time I said, well, why don't I start something? And, and obviously the name's another story, but Butcher Shop was sort of born. Yeah, and I, I'm really, I think that's really interesting that you, you kind of like came into uh, running this agency um, from having been an entrepreneur beforehand, because I think that's maybe uh, a kind of uh, a kind of cultural hurdle that maybe some agencies faced is it faces like not really being able to speak the language or really understand in an intimate way, you know, where a lot of these like founders they're working for are coming from, or the brands that they're working for are coming from, and they're very. Uh, in some respects, kind of like narrowly focused on, on their kind of deliverables, mm -hmm. um, and that's something that's probably changing in terms of how how agencies are, are are structuring their businesses, even from their own from the standpoint of their own business models. But I was curious to ask you, you know, how you felt that impacted like the types of clients that you got, or how you approached projects, or you know, how you were able to change the scope of those projects maybe? Yeah, no, it's, it's a, it's a great question because in one sense, you know, if, if it's, if the business is just led by entrepreneur and business, the craft goes down. If it's led by craft, then that goes high. The business kind of is losing, is missing some of those tactics. So what's a healthy balance in my particular case and the story of butcher shop in context, I, I was a craft guy. I, I went to film school, um, 
you know, was a ski bum in Colorado. Um, documentary filmmaking was where I, I got my degree at University of Colorado. So a lot of the a lot of the things that were going on in my life were about storytelling, making great films, uh, understanding the craft of of filmmaking, um, getting behind the camera, getting in the editing room, um, you know, working on motion graphics, learning how to kind of design for that medium uh, or that media, and and so during that time, I realized that, oh, wow, you know, if I'm going to go into the content game and go to LA as a career and start, you know, making films or making commercials and advertising and all the things that I, I saw as opportunity, I needed to understand a lot about design and brand and what branding really was and start, start learning this whole other side of like, what is emotional connection? What changes perception? And behavioral psychology was huge. Like what influences people to do this versus that? And so right around 2004, 2005, I started putting myself through that rigor of extending my skill set into design, you know, multidisciplinary design, graphic design, motion graphics, um, you know, filmmaking, film editing. Um, This is like all pre major social media and, and, and no iPhone even existed at this time. So it was, it was, <laughs> it was, you know, it was, it was really about advertising at that point. It was like, what is advertising? And that was really cool right. to me. Um, and so as I was studying that, when I went in to go to build this event with some friends in San Francisco, I had been kind of doing a lot of this stuff and learning a lot about it. So it was like, might as well apply everything I'm thinking and learning to a real world brand and develop it from scratch and market it and, you know, get people to buy tickets that were expensive and, you know, all the things that we kind of like wrap into that. Um, And so, you know, craft was huge for me, but during this time, um, the entrepreneurial side and the business side was about how do you raise money for something? How do you build sponsorship? How do you uh, build programming, right? How do you build a brand? How do you um, fund these things, right? How do you do the legal side of it? How do you do the PR side of this stuff? How do you do neighborhood outreach to make sure that, you know, wealthy neighbors in Pacific Heights and San Francisco don't feel like a snowboarder is coming through their room, you know, or their house? Um, there's, There's all these things that you sort of cut your teeth on by actually doing something really hard. And, um, and so part of that, my education and my learning and training didn't, didn't, didn't have a normal course. I guess the difference with an entrepreneur sort of environment is that you're really thinking through the lens of opportunity and problem solving rather than, you know, than, than, than craft and design, right? That's just kind of one byproduct of the sort of brain that, that, that I tend to occupy. Um, I definitely want to talk to you about your understanding of success and kind of what makes success within a, a company or a brand and your own company and its its kind of expansion. But of course, like probably the most uh, interesting element of your your understanding of success is how willing you are to kind of confront failure. And maybe that's also you know, uh, stemming from your experience as an entrepreneur, your understanding of entrepreneurialism, mm-hmm. um, is that you kind of constantly are asking questions about 
failure. Um, and I was wondering if you could yeah. introduce that for us. This is a beautiful question because I believe that this is the defining factor on what it takes to be, uh, you know, successful, right? And um, you got to go back a little bit in in butcher shop story, and probably most most agencies that start from scratch and that are independent, right? Everyone has. If you run an agency, you, you probably resonate with this. In the first phase of the company, you say yes to everything, and the reason you say yes to everything is to build you know, reputation, build volume, um, get experience and revenue, all these things, right? You got to flip that at some point where the power of no is actually more important than, than saying yes to things. That power of no means that you've reached a certain level of understanding of what works, what doesn't work. And it's built on trust and respect, right? A no is more healthy than saying yes and letting someone down. So when you say no, it comes with a ton of power um, and experience um, and expertise that I think is what shapes the next phase of, of our agency and butcher shop. So now what no has become is a lifelong sort of analysis of one thing that people don't really think about, which is failure. And when you work with a client or you're working with your team or you're building an agency or you have a great agency, the word success is thrown around, you know, um, like emojis, you know, everything, everybody comes into the, <laughs> everybody comes into the conversation with like success metrics and KPIs and OKRs and, you know, first calls with clients are like, what does success like look, look like for you? And, and we're enamored by the success because we think that that's what everyone wants to talk about. And, 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 and rightly so, it is. No one wants to talk about failure or what could go wrong. And what we've realized as, as an agency butcher shop and what my sort of like lifelong clandestined sort of proclamation and soapbox is about is around shedding light on how powerful failure is and how it can be a friend and how it can be a welcomed source of insight and power if you let it. Um, but problem is, is that people don't want to have unpopular conversations. They don't want to have uncomfortable conversations. And we shy away from things that either are painful or, or uh, you know, cause angst. But actually, if you think about success, it causes the most angst, the most stress, the most burnout, because success paths <laughs> aren't clear. And so when everybody yeah. knows what success is, it immediately goes into what could go, you know, shoulda, woulda, coulda, what are we going to do? Like, how are we going to get there? And everyone is clawing at like these things that uh, are unknowns. So unknowns to me equal fear. And the amount of unknowns and fear that you have equals a lack of clarity. Lack of clarity is the root of all evil because it's filled with assumptions and surprises. Um, and so how do, we, how do we mitigate that? How do we fix that? Well, if you ask the question, what would make our version of success fail, you get a different perspective. People come to the table with all sorts of things that could go wrong, all sorts of failure points, whether they're internal or external. Um, and, and you now have a very clear path to success by just simply saying, well, yeah, these were the unknowns. Now they're known. Let's just solve for those and we'll get to success. So by re-engineering the brain uh, to think that way and then getting a team to think that way and then your clients to think that way, 
you increase the chances of success. Um, you'll have to forgive me because, you know, we, we spoke <clears throat> the other week and, and we were talking about failure. And since then, I, I've kind of like used it as a little experiment in, in kind of this workshop I'd had planned with a client for whom I was doing like this ed editorial project. Um, and so, and I started this workshop by asking that question, like, what does failure look like? And it was so interesting. I, I've kind of like, I, I, I can't imagine like not doing that now, <laughs> not, not to steal from you, but it was such an enlightening experience because it really reshaped what the project was trying to do or how, you know, or how it was meant to get there. And you said something in your response, which was about, kind of like both internally and externally, people kind of come up with failure points. And what was very apparent is like, we kept thinking about this in terms of like audience growth. And in fact, so many of the failure points that people were, were kind of pointing out had to do with internal dynamics. Um, and I just thought that was really interesting and, and nowhere where we would have gotten to. So I want to say thank you for that. <laughs> but also, um, you know, yeah, I guess I just, you know, I want to kind of like explore that dynamic, how you feel like that conversation has, mm -hmm. has maybe shifted, um, uh, shifted how projects have been approached yeah. or, or kind of like what you've been tasked with because people realize, in fact, they're trying to solve a different problem than they were trying to, than they thought they were trying to solve. Yeah, well, let me pitch it to everybody as a product. First of all, thank you for that. Um, and you by no means are stealing it. I can't, Don, <laughs> myself, Danya, the whole company, everybody that is at Butcher Shop, we can't contain it. We want everybody to learn it, love it, use it, um, and start thinking about it. Um, I was, uh, it's the end of the year. I looked back through Slack and I found the first time uh, Clarity beat failure and the pre-mortem process and some of the things that we do were, were sort of mentioned and it was actually way back in 2016, if you can believe it or not. So flash forward now five years, we've had five years of, of developing the concept, of developing the mindset, developing the methodologies, um, and putting that on a wrapper so other people like you, David, and, and other agencies and other leaders and businesses and units in those businesses can use it. And so what we've oriented around is that, you know, our approach is called beat failure. Um, and, and with beat failure, it's a, it's approach, it's an approach to gain maximum clarity, to develop, you know, defendable strategies, next steps, really good action plans and have clear alignment with either your clients or your team. Um, uh, the mindset is really that the emphasis needs to be taken away from success and put on failure because that is the natural and true way to actually reach success or your goals is to focus on the failure points. 95% of all startups fail. Why? Because founders are ill-equipped and they focus on success and they don't think about the failures and they go bye-bye. So if that's the case, uh, maybe we change the emphasis from success to failure. Maybe we empower founders, <laughs> you know, to the idea. Maybe, maybe that's, maybe it's a rigged system. I'm just going on the record, off the record. Maybe saying that. Um, so, so when we look at the most of the clients that we work with and the people that we work with, the, the stakes are so high. Silicon Valley is all about fail fast. Like they wear it as a badge of honor. Like is this, you're no one unless you failed a thousand times. That's the only way to be successful. And we say bullshit. And we've seen out of 700 clients that Butcher Shops worked with, most are 
you know, startups and, and VC backed startups and well funded. And we've worked with 34 unicorns and we've had such a hard time, um, you know, just focusing on success that this brought so much clarity to our world where we even built our own million dollar product called Prio. Um, that's how much we invested in it to, to run this process in a digital environment um, and, and host pre-mortem sessions and things like that. Um, we as a company have done it at the most important inflection points and everyone in our company uses the beat failure approach and the Prio product to, to move through initiatives. Doesn't matter what it is, you know? We wanna launch a new work remote uh, you know, plan for everybody and go decentralized. Cool, what would make that fail? We want to implement a new strategy um, for Butcher Shop to come out gunning in 2023. Cool. What would make that fail? We want to go on a hiring rampage and, 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 and build out some leadership. Cool. What would make that fail? So we've used it ourselves first, so we have to practice what we preach. Now, what we've done in the most recent year is we have changed our entire approach to business development, where when a client comes to us with an RFP, um, you know, as a growth and transformation company, we have to match our products to what it takes to grow and transform companies. And the way that we do it now is that we put the RFP aside and we say, okay, X and X company, what would make you fail? What would make your brand business or product fail, right? What would make this project fail? And we run that in a format and we get all these failure points out. And what we've done is we've matched our product services and are offering what we do to beating or mitigating those failure points. And so we're able to take a small relationship and turn it into quite a large one because no one wants to see failure points happen. And we can prove that if you don't do this certain thing or engage with us here, or we don't use this product that we have or this product service that we have, you're going to fail. Um, so we've seen it really unite teams where, okay, we're going to do a big brand evolution project. Cool. Now you need the world to know about it. So where's the brand awareness going to come from? Is that another team over there that somehow is tasked with going out and like launching brand campaigns and putting dollars behind that? Well, why aren't you guys talking? Okay, let's bring them in. Let's talk about this. So do you guys have a content plan for this? Is the brand strategy that we're doing going to impact that content plan? Cool. Let's circle that up even more. So we see all these failure points come in, th come through, and we're able to build more cohesive um, scopes, proposals, relationships that don't last three, four, five, six months, but they start to look like three-year plans, you know. And so our agency used to take on, um, you know, between seventy and hundred projects a year. Our goal now is anywhere from twelve to twenty. That's it. Like we're, we're you know like larger scopes less, but more sort of of like what it takes to actually hit, like help a brand break into an emerging market or break out to lead it. Like, how do you do that? Um, so failures become this topic. Beat failure is our approach. I travel all over the world now talking about beat failure, the mindset, the method, and our tools that we make. It's, it's my favorite topic because I think everyone, everyone understands that clarity equals great culture. And the more clarity in an organization, the better the culture is. It's interesting because, you know, I think so often what you see happen with like truly excellent creative work is that it, it kind of, um, it kind of is produced 
and it's not really used in the right way or it's like corrupted really quickly within the company because maybe it doesn't meet certain needs that are, are should have been obvious or immediate um i was just wondering uh, i was just wondering if if yeah i guess i just want to hear your thoughts on that and and whether you feel like this approach actually like uh you know improves the health of you know design work yeah. even at, at its like most basic level. Yeah. And, and again, like I just go back to just the beat failure approach. Um, you know, when you're engaging on a project, let's, I mean, there's, there's so many agencies we love, like don't make no bones about it. Are we perfect? No. Are we the best? I like to think we're great, but there are a lot of wonderful agencies that are in our world through WGI talent network. There's a lot of agencies that we admire and look up to. We're acquiring a few agencies on the path right now. We've acquired one during the pandemic. So, so I, I think what, what, is, what is the difference, there's so many agencies that do such amazing work, but was it ever interrogated to say what would make this work fa- or what would make the project fail? And was it ever interrogated that there was no plan for what it, how it gets deployed, what it's going to be out there in the world. Is it really meeting the business goals? Like, is it connected? Have you interrogated whether or not the project would fail if you don't get enough buy-in from people, if you don't bring them along the journey? A lot of work that gets done goes to die because they didn't socialize it very well. They didn't get adoption. They didn't include people through the process. So to make a sense of like, was the failure point at the end of the project without a deployment or flight plan, or how did it not get out to the world? Um, I think you can track that back to the first conversation you had to understand stakeholder dynamic, how much buy-in there is, if there's truly a plan. And if they realize that if they don't spend the time, money, and energy to socialize and promote and, and, and move that work to get the desired reaction, it doesn't do anything. I see so many companies do massive brand evolutions, yet they stop once the style guide's done or the website's built, you know? And then a bunch of people pick apart their old tactics on the messaging and the brand campaigns and it never becomes what it should be. But what if we connect what if yeah. we connected all that and realized that the life cycle of any brand is exactly that? It's an evolution and you have to stay on that evolutionary track. And so our engagements don't look like just do the thing we asked you to do and we're done. It's trying to get them to understand that there's a maintenance and a participation and an evolution that needs to take place. And can we use like objective data to show you that if we do these things, we're going to move the needle in the business in a place that, you know, affects your valuation, your stock price, your sales targets, your, you know, uh, conversion, whatever it is that we're trying to put up against. But the problem is, is that nobody interrogates whether those things are even achievable based with the, based on the scope of work they're looking at. There's too many other tactics that need to be uh, interrogated. So I think we do a very good job at that. And I think that's where it's a sobering moment where trust and value are built in, you know, they're, they're built on calls and in the boardroom. They're not built on, you know, the mural boards and the presentations you give. You know, they're built in those conversations. Yeah. Um. I- I also wanted to touch on your own kind of expansion as an agency. Um, you know, it's it, 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 it's 
less than usual, I guess, for a mid-sized agency to grow through acquisition. That's like a tactic of, of one of those huge kind of conglomerates. Um, you know, mid-sized agencies or small agencies would tend to, you know, if you wanted to open up in Asia, for example, you'd send somewhere, someone there from your team who could, you know, transplant um, some of your culture um, and your ways of working and whatever. And I'm curious to know why you decided to approach it um, through acquisition, your own expansion through acquisition and not. Yeah, probably because we're a glutton for punishment and masochists and (laughs) and love love the the pain of it all. No. Um, So for us, the acquisition is not to just overly inflate our P&L. The path of acquisition in our strategy is to pay off how do we become a more holistic growth and transformation company? And what do we have, what are we missing in our product service story that we can either add um, to that? One such tactic for us is that there's global companies that we work with. They aren't just regionalized in the US. Like a company launching in the US wants to go to the next biggest European market, which is Germany and Doc, right? A company in Doc wants to get over into China, right? Or somebody in APAC is now saying, let's try to bring this to the U.S. or U.S. wants to go into China. So having the mobility of that and understanding our growth and transformation can help that migratory or that expansion or that, you know, uh, total addressable market and regional based market that's, that's growing is something that we need to do to pay off growth and transformation, so if we were just a simple, you know, brand design studio, it doesn't make any sense to go and start like, you know, buying more of the same. We just we could just hire people to do that. But ours is really about pipeline people and come and paying off our product story. And so that's why we look at at, you know, our new office in Vienna as a very good foothold to the doc market. Um, we're pursuing some things in APAC um, that you know, are really interesting. Our acquisition in um, in Guadalajara uh, of Maniac during the pandemic was mostly to beef our digital game up because they're a pretty prolific digital shop um, down in Latin America and Mexico. And um, and so part of that is like skill set. The other part of it is like paying off the growth and transformation story. So our acquisition strategy is very much tied to how we pay off the value that we want to bring to our clients, right? Rather than just how big can we get. And once we reach a certain point, our goal is to have somebody else out there in the world saying, shoot, Butcher Shop did something really cool. We need to be a part of that. And and I think that that's where it gets really interesting for us, you know? That was producer David Michon speaking to Trevor Hubbard, founder and global CEO of Butcher Shop Creative. A big thank you from myself, Nick and Toby, for listening. Thank you also to Trevor, to Sean Crook for editing this episode, and to George Grinling for the theme music. To find other episodes, search for Private Views wherever you get your podcasts. To find out more about Alfie, please visit our website, aufi.com. We're also on social media channels using the handle Ask Us for Ideas. And finally, please do share and rate this episode and subscribe to Private Views so you'll be the first to know when new episodes drop. Until next time.